You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I do nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, there's nothing like reading Yelp reviews. It is just entertaining uh, to read through some of people's, you know, experiences and their feelings toward restaurants. And some of these reviews are, are lengthy and like novel status. They're, you know, an entire paragraph. And then there's a the little see more button at the bottom and it just... What I've learned is that um, what you have to sort of do is sort through these, these rev- reviews because you can have a, a number of five-star ratings and then... Just out of the blue, there's the, the, the one-star rating. And it's a very disorienting sort of experience, especially if you're taking serious this, this endeavor to find a good restaurant. So there's the, you know, it's the greatest place. It's a wonderful place. The service is great. It's so clean. The food is amazing. And then you get the one-star rating, and you're thinking, what, who hurt you? What's going on? And they typically always begin the same way. It's like, first of all, the only reason I'm giving it one star is because it didn't let me give it zero stars. Tell me how you really feel. And, you know, and if it wasn't just for this, it was this. And I, then I had to endure the agony of this. And then, you know, on top of this and on and on and on. And so there's an art of sort of sorting through these reviews. You got you to figure out what's good and what's bad, which ones to regard, which ones to disregard. And that's Okay. Because at the end of the day, it's a review of a restaurant, and it is your choice whether or not you want to, you know, ignore or listen to uh, these reviews, and it's not really a big deal. And to be honest, these people that are reviewing these restaurants, at the end of the day, they're just strangers that care very little about your overall joy. It's just an opportunity for them to vent. And they've got very little skin in the game. But then... Then there are reviews that you just can't disregard, right? There are words, reviews, that you're not going to want to ignore. Like the ones that we've been looking at over the last couple months in the book of Revelation, where Jesus has given seven churches these very clear and honest assessments of their church and reviews of their lives, Did Siri hear me talking about Yelp earlier? <laughs> Someone's already choosing where they're going for lunch today. So, 
so far what we've seen is Jesus have give, has given uh, these seven churches these very clear and honest reviews. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems like the church, in the church right now, there's a lot of critics. There are a lot of out, outspoken voices uh, speaking out uh, about what, it, what they have against the church. And to be honest, and sometimes for good reason, and, and it's not very hard to find the faults in the church. You will, if you're even a guest this morning, you've found them. They're here. They're present. They're glaring at times. And I think it's fairly easy and very common to simply point out what's wrong in the church. That's not hard. That's not creative. That's not difficult to see the glaring issues in the church and to call them out. Now, it's important at times, but I'm saying that it's not hard. That's not creative. It's not difficult. And so the question for us today is what makes these words from Jesus any different than just the rest of the noise, the rest of the church critics that we hear over and over and over again. What makes these words matter? What, 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 what's the reason that we have today to listen to these words? Well, look at me in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I'm going to ask to, to leave this up for just a moment here. What Jesus has been doing in every single letter, and now is doing in this final letter to Laodicea, is establishing who he is and on what kind of authority he speaks. This is why you should listen, in other words. This is who is speaking to you. And in this final letter, he describes himself first as the, the amen, the let it be of God, which means Jesus is both the revelation and the embodiment, the conclusion, the fulfillment of the will of God. And now because of that, Jesus is both the faithful one and the true, faithful and true. So not only does Jesus say it how it is, but he sees it for what it really truly is. He's faithful and true. And on top of this, he is the true witness and the beginning of God's creation. That word witness in the original Greek is martyr. Not just an indifferent observer, a martyr. And the beginning of, of God's creation, now don't think in terms of chronological order as if Jesus was a created being or the first created thing. What this means is that Jesus is the preeminent one. He's the first. He's the most important. He is king over creation. And so we put it all together and we ask the question once again, who is speaking? This is none other than the crucified king. This is why we should be listening. This is why we should care. Because this is someone that is deeply invested in this church. And this is someone that is deeply invested in our church reality. Now, today we, we conclude our series, Dear Church. You can bring that passage down. Uh, we're, we're concluding this, this series, Dear Church. And what we've really been focusing on over the last seven or eight weeks is how these letters really identify who Jesus is and who we are ourselves. This is what Jesus has been doing. He's describing who he is, and he's describing for us who we are. And, and what we see in this final letter is that Jesus is challenging the church in who they think that they are. He is challenging the false self that is present in Laodicea. But what I hope and pray uh, that you would discover today, and really the lasting impression... If the letters of the, of the churches of Revelation ever come to mind once again, this is the lasting impression 
that I hope to leave you with today, and it is this, that these words are the expression of Jesus' love and passion for his church. These are love letters to his people. These are the words of someone deeply invested in his people. In fact, Jesus loves us enough to confront us in our error. He loves us enough to rescue us from our delusion. And he loves us enough to welcome us back into fellowship with himself. This is the one who is speaking. Amen? Let me begin with a story. I'm sure you're familiar with the story, at least in part, but there was an emperor one day, or there was an emperor in time, rather, who loved his clothes, loved his clothes. He wasn't that interested in, you know, checking in on his soldiers or going to the theater or riding in his carriage unless those circumstances became opportunities to show off his clothes. In fact, it was said that this emperor had a coat for every hour of the day. And he was in charge of a large, prominent city where people came and and went, and there was hustle and bustle. And one day, two tricksters show up in town. And they let everyone know that we are these world-class, world-famous weavers. We make these beautiful fabrics. In fact, the fabrics that we make are not only the most vibrant fabrics you have ever seen, but there's a magical, mysterious sort of essence to what we make. And here's, what, here's the deal. When we make our fabrics, they, we make them so fine that only wise people can see them. The fools, the stupid ones, the ones that are not fit for their position, they can't see it. It's only the smart and wise people. And so the king is thinking two birds with one stone. I love clothes, and I would love an opportunity to determine who is in powers, positions of power that are really not fit for their position. And so he pays these two men a large quantity of money to begin the work of making him, the emperor, his new clothes. And so they demand, the, you know, the finest materials, the most fine silk and threads, and they set up their, you know, the looms, and they're, they're working, and, and they're spinning the wheels, but there's, there's no thread in them. And as they continue to bring the materials, they were tucking them away and hiding them, and they were working long into the night. And the king's thinking, you know, this is taking a while for these clothes, and so he sends his most trusted men. Interesting thing about the story is he first sends his most trusted old minister, the pastor, And he shows up, and he comes to check on the progress, and he walks in, and he sees what you and I would see. He sees nothing in the looms, but he can't admit it. And so he comes back, and he reports to the king. He says, it's the most excellent thing I've ever seen in my life. He next sends his most trusted guard, and he goes in, and he sees nothing again. And he comes back with an even more exaggerated testimony. Oh my gosh, it's the most beautiful thing you have ever seen. You, are, you, you just can't wait until you wear these clothes. And so the king's like, I got to see these things. So he shows up with his entourage and all the men are standing before him and they're just going on and on. It's exquisite. It's beautiful. It's excellent. It's wonderful. It's so vibrant. It's blinding. And so he pushes through and he comes to see what everyone else sees. It's nothing in the looms, but he can't admit that. So he's thinking to himself, okay, there's a dilemma because there's a procession tomorrow where everyone in the city is coming, and I, I can't see these clothes, but I can't admit it because then everyone will know that I'm not fit to be emperor. And so the day of the procession comes, and he shows up, and he removes all of his clothes, and the two men begin to cl- clothe him with his invisible trousers and his you know, invisible cloak, and he's standing there in front of the mirror, and this is his moment he can bail. Like, it's his last moment, and he stands in front of the mirror, and he's thinking, what am I doing? 
But he just says, excellent, they fit great. And so the procession begins. And he's walking down the street, and his most noble men are holding up the long, invisible train. And everyone in the city is just saying, how wonderful are these clothes? How beautiful these clothes. Oh, my gosh, what a king we have. And yet a little voice emerges from the crowd. It's a little boy who has nothing to lose. And he says, he doesn't have any clothes on. An older man standing next to him says, the boy says he's got no clothes. And another voice, he's got no clothes, he's naked, he's not wearing anything, and the crowd just begins to laugh and make fun of him. He's, he's got no clothes on. Now, this is the most frightful part of the story. It says that the king pauses, and he shivers. Not just because he's cold, but he's afraid. And he says, he thinks to himself, and the first thought that comes to mind is that the show must go on. The show must go on. And so in just as much pride as ever, he continues moving his way forward through the procession as his noble men hold up the train that was never there. And likewise, a voice of reason interrupts the commotion of Laodicea, and a voice of reason interrupts the commotion, the, the procession of our lives. And, and with similar honesty and candor, Jesus says these words in verse 15, I know your works. I know. I see. I know what you don't seem to realize about yourself. I recognize what you may be too scared to face in your life. Those things that you think too much hinges on this. If, if, I were, if, if God were to know this, if anyone were to know this, then it would all come crashing down. They would determine that I was not fit for my position. And God says, I see it. I know. Leonard Ravenhill once said, there are three persons living in each of us. The one we think we are, the one other people think we are, and the one that God knows we are. And so today, and always, we have a decision to make. You have a decision to make. And indecision is not a decision. And the decision you have to make is, am I going to live into the identity of what I think I am? Am I going to live into the identity of what people say about me? Or am I going to live into the identity that God knows? What God knows about me, what God accomplishes for me, what God says about me. Now, a little bit of history about the Laodicea in the first century, this, this city that we're reading about this morning. Laodicea was an extremely affluent city in the first century in this portion of the world. And it was known for three things in particular. It was known for banking. They were rich. It was known for its uh, advancements in technology, ophthalmology, the, med you know, the study of eyes. And ultimately, for clothing, they made these beautiful dark wool cloths and clothing. And so remember that. This was a city known for their money, known for their claim to be able to see, and known for their clothing. History also tells us that in the first century, there was a devastating earthquake that destroyed Laodicea 
and many other, other cities around it. We've learned about those, those earthquakes that hit the other cities that we've studied in Revelation so far. But the interesting thing about Laodicea is that of all the other prominent cities in the Roman Empire that were destroyed, Laodicea was the only one that refused help. Now, isn't that interesting? Last week, Philadelphia was overlooked because they weren't important enough. Laodicea is not overlooked, but they say, nah, no thanks. In fact, one historian, Tacitus, puts it this way, without any relief from Rome, Laodicea recovered itself by its own resources. So they were affluent, they were educated, they were resourceful, and they had obtained... They had obtained everything that they thought they would ever need. And yet, listen, listen to these words here from Jesus in verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, this this was a people who thought that their successes and the resources that surrounded them would make them something. And so they began to sort of, like many of us do in our lives, they began to form an identity around these things that they had accomplished. Now, it's interesting. It doesn't say that we have riches. This is what they say. I am rich. This is who I am. I am educated. It's not that you have a master's degree or a doctorate. No, I am educated. This is who I am. Or I'm the pretty one. Or I'm the smart one. Or I'm the athletic one. Or I'm the hardworking. That is who I am. This is who we are. And so the issue for us is that for the Christian, our true identity is not a persona that we create or something that, you know, hinges on our successes. Or here's the good news. It's not even something that hinges on our failings. But for the Christian, our truest identity is an identity that God creates for us. And here's the good news. And then offers to us as a gift of grace to be received through faith. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. If you are in Christ, this is who you are. You are a new creation. You are not defined by your best or by your worst. You are defined by my recreating power. And this is from who? God. But truth be told, we all, in some degree or another, forsake this true identity. And we create these facades in order to project something that we desire other people to see. Truth is, we are all, in some way or another, in identity crisis. And and this is what's been known as the false self. The false self. Jesus offers to us a true self But what we bring to the equation is a false self. And what that means is that we create these personas, these images, these things that we project to other people. And often what we project is in order to protect us against shame or against fear or against isolation 
or against rejection or even just protect us against feeling unimportant. Often there are those pivotal shaping moments in our life where we're told we're worthless and so we, we try for the rest of our life to become worth something or that we're not beautiful so we try to become beautiful or that we're small so we try to be great. But at the end of the day, it's just a persona. And when it, when it ends up happening is in the long run, it leaves us disconnected from reality. We begin to believe our own press. We, believe, we begin to believe these things that we are projecting to other people. This is, this is the nature of self-deception. Listen to this line uh, from the Scarlet Letter. It says, No man for any considerable period can wear one face to himself and then another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be the true one. Right? We talked about this, this, this sort of sociological idea of the front stage and the backstage, who we are in private, who we are in public, and in that back and forth of our lives, those lines begin to blur, and we begin to believe the things that we've been projecting to people all our lives. And so why do you need the outside voice of Jesus, and why do, you need the, and why do we need the outside voice of Christian community? And here it is. It's because we are very susceptible to believing wrong things about ourselves. Chances are you are believing wrong things about you right now. You've been told or you've come up with something you think is true about you that is ultimately a lie and deception from the enemy to rob you of your freedom and your joy. And you've bought it, hook, line, and sinker. And often the last ones to recognize this is us. Now what we see here in Revelation chapter 3 is that Jesus isn't just warning about this sort of self-deception on a personal level, but this is also something that occurs on a corporate level. This is something that can emerge in a church as a whole. And for various reasons, whether, maybe, whether or not a church has come into money or a church finds resources somewhere else or they grow in numbers or they've got you know amazing music or smart people or a gifted leader you know fill in the blank with some sort of surface level success a church can begin to believe that it is the sum totals sum total of its successes instead of what it really truly is and at the end of the day here's what we are we are beggars telling other people where to find bread at the end of the day, this is what we are reality. This is like our mission statement. We are beggars who are telling other beggars where we've discovered bread in Jesus Christ. Now, there's an old hymn that we sing from time to time that really captures this well for us. It goes like this. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And so we on our own are empty-handed, naked, helpless, foul, and pure. And until you recognize these difficult truths about yourself, 
In other words, until you recognize your neediness, you will forever fight the false self that attempts to improve your situation on your own resources. If you're unwilling to meet God in this place of honesty, that this deep place of honesty where we meet our true self in Christ, then you will forever fight the false self that distorts your reality and disconnects you from what life really is. And so what's the outcome we see here? The outcome is this, that self-deception leads to self-reliance. And this is almost always the sequence. And this is expressed in probably the worst thing a church could ever say about themselves here. And this is really interesting. This, this, this church verbalizes who they are and verbalizes their position. What they verbalize is not heresy, it's not blasphemy, it's not hate speech, all the things that we hate. It's worse. Verse 17. I don't need a thing. I don't need a thing. So what's the scariest thing that could ever happen to us as a church? I'm sick, and so sometimes I think about those sort of things. What's the worst thing that could happen to us? We face some difficult things as a church. What would be catastrophic? What would put us under? I believe this is it right here. Reaching the place where we think that we are beyond our need for God. Reaching the place as a church where we stop depending on him for our everything, where we stop praying, where we stop pleading for his mercy, where we stop interceding on behalf of the salvation of our city, where we just simply say, we're good, we don't need you anymore. There's a story in Christian history. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi went and visited uh, Rome at the time, and the Pope is showing him all of the treasure troves of the Vatican. Hallway after hallway of these fine, all this fine art and gold and silver and jewels and all the things that over the hundreds of years the church had acquired. And in sort of this cocky way, he references, the Pope references a story that we find in the book of Acts. I believe it's in Acts 4 where Peter and another apostle are walking to the temple and a crippled man reaches out asking for alms, asking for financial help. And Peter says, silver and gold I have not, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise and walk. And the Pope turns to St. Francis and he says, look, Peter can no longer say silver and gold have I not. And saddened, St. Francis turns to him and says, but neither can he say rise and walk. And now no longer can he say you are healed. And the point is this, that whenever the church places its hope in its successes and, and stops depending on God, it's, it, it just forfeits its spiritual vital, vitality. It, it's, it, it forfeits spiritual power. And, and what we see here in Laodicea is as they, as they forfeited their, their spiritual power through self-reliance, they had also forfeited their spiritual passion. Look with me in verses 15 through 16. Jesus' assessment of the church. He says, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Gosh, I just wish you were this or that. 
but not lukewarm. See, Laodicea, like many cities in this time, and even cities today, received their water from outside of their city. So they had uh, these cold springs that came in from Colossae and these hot springs that came in from an area called the Heropolis. And so the people would have understood what Jesus is getting at here because they knew that from the cold water, cold water brought refreshing to the city, and from the hot water springs, hot water brought cleansing properties to the city, but lukewarm water was just simply useless. It wasn't helpful in any one of those equations. In fact, not only was it useless, lukewarm water, according to Jesus, is nauseating. Jesus reveals a sort of visceral reaction. Jesus is saying that this church has become like lukewarm water. They had their, they let their affluence and their success drain them of spiritual life. And now here they are, no passion, no zeal, no enthusiasm, not even cold hostility towards God. They just don't care. Man, either you just love me with all you've got or at least hate me because you understand what I stand for, but this indifference, oh my gosh, what is this? Now, this is really interesting because Laodicea's biggest threat was not persecution. I don't read of any kind of persecution here. We don't see that in the, the history books doesn't mention, you know, blatant satanic attacks like these other cities in Revelation that are known as the throne of Satan. Nothing like that here. No persecution, no attack. What was their biggest threat? It was indifference towards God. And, and I find in a wildly distracted and overwhelmed age like the one that we live in in the 21st century, apathy is one of our biggest threats as well. What, what's the biggest threat that we can face as a church? Indifference. Apathy. Just not caring. That, that sort of shrug of the shoulders. Like Laodicea, it's not even necessarily vices, but preoccupation with good things that eventually drain a church of all of its spiritual life. And so because of this, Jesus has this almost visceral reaction. He's repulsed. This is actually a very distinct place in Scripture where we see Jesus having this sort of reaction to what's going on in the church. Now, it's worth mentioning something because I think we can hear that and then we can begin to attach it to other areas of our lives. Like, God is repulsed by me. He's disgusted by my life. But this needs to be mentioned. God is not repulsed by your sin. God is not repulsed by your brokenness. He's not repulsed by your shame. He's not repulsed by your humanity. He's not repulsed by your scars. In fact, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is proof that God is willing to step into the mess of our humanity. The cross is proof that Jesus is, is willing to enter into the most vile things about us. The entire span of the Bible is really a movement of God moving towards us in our humanity to the ends of the earth to redeem us and restore us. God is not afraid of you. God's not afraid of the worst thing you've got to throw at him. And yet he's repulsed by this, spiritual apathy. Isn't that interesting? He's not disgusted by the grossest thing in your life. And yet he doesn't touch us with a 10-foot pole.
I'm going to go a little bit long today. I'm just going to warn you about that right now, so I'm not apologizing at the end of the sermon. For a church to have seen the beauty and the worth of Jesus Christ and all that God has done on their behalf, the cross, the resurrection, the majesty of Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, our place in the kingdom, and to just simply turn away in indifference and apathy, Jesus is saying, anything but this, anything but this, crown me or crucify me, but don't just stand there. Now, Jesus could have responded in indifference. That's what we do. Someone's indifferent towards us, forget you. I don't care about you. That's the way that we protect our hearts from hurt. If someone doesn't care about us, then we, we convince ourselves that we don't really care about them either. And what does Jesus do? In the face of our indifference, he actually moves toward them in refining passion. Look with me in verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So why this letter? Why this tone? Why, why this, these harsh images? It's because Jesus loves us. In fact, one commentator put it this way, the very harshness of this reprimand is the proof of, the, of a love that wants only the best for his own. Think about his parents. Sometimes we've got to say the hard things because we love them. Hebrews 12 would say, this is the litmus test of whether or not you're a legitimate son or daughter. It's discipline. It's not proof that he's forsaken you. It's proof he loves you. Those whom I love, I discipline. And of all the churches in Laodicea, the one that, that really deserves to hear those words least is this church right here. And that Jesus says emphatically, I love you. And so when we begin to shine the light of God's love, the love of Jesus Christ on this letter, we begin to see what Jesus is doing. And I'm going to make three brief observations and I'm done. The first is this, that he exposes us in order to clothe us. What is Jesus doing here? He exposes us in order to clothe us. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sin, they fall, and immediately they recognize their nakedness. And what do they do? They, they hide and they seek to cover themselves with fig leaves. This is a perfect image of man-made religion. I'm embarrassed, I'm afraid, I'm ashamed, so they try to cover it. What does God do? He comes to them, he calls them out of hiding, he removes the fig leaves from them, and then he replaces it from the skins of a sacrifice. He takes their insufficient covering and he gives them something better. He essentially says, I know that you're covering your vulnerability, I know you're covering your, your frail humanity and everything in you wants to cover it, but what Jesus is saying is I've got something greater for you. He removes, and so what the connection is for us is he removes the false selves, the fig leaves of our lives, that burdensome, confusing, exhausting to keep up false self, so that he can replace it with the true self, the true identity as God's beloved sons and daughters, the identity that brings freedom and wholeness. And so when the, the, the truth is, when, when God shines the light on our, those vulnerable places and those frail places of our lives, it hurts. It's embarrassing. We come face to face with our humanity like no other way. And we begin to think to ourselves, is there a reason for this? God, are you just simply trying to shame me? Are you simply trying to make me feel bad about myself? But 
what we need to remember is that Jesus is not like the friends of the emperor in the story who set him up for failure. Jesus is the friend that loves us, who protects us from shame. And we hear those words explicitly here in the scripture. Look at me in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. At the cross, Jesus took the worst of us and in exchange gave us his best. He took our sin and our unrighteousness and he gave us his holiness and his righteousness and he took our death and he gave us his life and this is the pattern that Jesus continues to fulfill in our lives. He's saying, bring your brokenness and I'll exchange it with something better. Bring your false self and I'll give you the true self. Recognize that you are poor in spirit. Bring me your poverty and I will make you rich. Acknowledge that you are blind and I will give you sight. Bring your shame and your hurt and your weakness and I will clothe you. This is the great exchange. The second thing we see here is that he knocks in order to fellowship with us. Verse 20, behold, I knock, I stand rather at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That sound, the knocking of Jesus, can be both alarming and comforting. It's alarming because it reminds us as Jesus is knocking, the picture shows us that Jesus is outside the church. Of all places we should find Jesus, it's not outside the church knocking. It's in the center. And somehow through the spiritual apathy and self-reliance of the church, they have quite literally pushed Jesus out of his own church. That's an alarming picture. And we can, this can occur in our own personal lives too. Indifference seeks to push Jesus out of the place of preeminent in our life. But it's comforting because it reminds us that Jesus refuses to walk away. Here's the beautiful sound. This is the sound of Jesus continuing to knock 2,000 years later. Man, if I were in charge of this thing, I would have given up a long time ago. He knocks, and the sound of that knock can be really overwhelming, and it can be jolting, and it even can be annoying. God, I hope God is annoying in your life sometimes. The saints of old used to refer to, to God as the great hound of heaven. He's just the one that won't come off my heels. And yet it reminds us that he never grows weary of pursuing his people. He continues to knock. The, the sound of his knock never grows faint. Never gives up. He continues to pursue his elect. And Jesus says, look, listen, I'm standing here at the door and, and, and I'm knocking. And I, I think you know the one. I think you know that sound. I, I think some of you here this morning are hearing that knocking. You're hearing that alarming sound. You're hearing that, that overwhelming sound. You're hearing that annoying call of Jesus knocking at your heart. 
I love this. He says, if anyone, has an, uh, if anyone hears my voice, if anyone has an ear to hear my voice. So it goes from the corporate level as the church, of the church, down to the individual level. This is what Jesus is doing. He's making it very personal. He's not allowing us to say, this was a word for us as a church reality. No, he's saying, listen, individual, listen. Listen. If there's anyone who will listen to my voice and simply open themselves up to me in faith repentant and repentance, I will fellowship with him. I will be there with him. I will be present. I will stoke the fire. And so the question for you is, will you be the one? Will you be the one that listens and responds and opens your life up to him? Third and finally, he humbles us in order to honor us. Jesus begins by bringing the church pretty low. I mean, he does. It's a very humbling message. But he ends this letter, and we need to recognize this, by lifting them up and lifting us up quite literally into the heavens. Look with me in verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So here's a question. How did Jesus experience victory. How was Jesus crowned in victory? And the answer is that Jesus was crowned in victory. He was exalted as the name above every name as he went low in sacrifice and death. And so this is the pattern that we see in the life of Jesus. And this is the pattern that's to mark our life to the believer. And the pattern is this. For the Christian, we too will be honored and exalted with Christ but the way up is down. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter. He said, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humbled to be exalted, brought low to be lifted up. A cross today, a crown in eternity. And so as we go low in humility, what we need to do is we need to acknowledge our need for God. We need to repent of our apathy. We need to die to ourselves, believing, believing that in due time, he's going to raise us up with Christ. And what we need to be reminded of is that this God, he offers us a place in his kingdom. And what he creates in us is something greater than we could ever create for ourselves. He truly makes us a somebody. And I know that you are fighting off those feelings of feeling insignificant and unimportant and small. And all of your accomplishments in your life are a way to just sort of counteract feeling unimportant. But listen to these words. Jesus offers you a life that's not found when you're looking for it. It's a life that's found when you're looking to him. So that's the call for us today. And I guess that's my final point in this series through the letters of the church. Find the true you, that you have been longing for your whole life as you look to the true and risen Jesus Christ. Amen? Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time.